I, um, I've been enjoying this chem meeting very much. It's, uh, and a number of you have spoken to me about how nicely many of the meetings are tying together, right? There's a number of different meetings about reading scripture and how, how to read scripture. And, and I feel like a number of us are speaking to a similar topic, but we're not just duplicating each other, we're complementing each other, right? And, and giving um, different aspects of a similar truth. And uh, I've been blessed by uh, Dr. Wallin's seminar, and he happens to be in the back here today. I was able to attend his this morning, and um, I enjoyed it very much. Um, and in fact, there was a, a point that he made in particular that uh, caused me to make a new slide in my presentation here. Um, uh, in fact, I'm going to open with that point, because those of you who were here yesterday remember that I've talked about... And, and Dr. Wallin has talked about the different lenses that, that special interests in ideological groups have read the scriptures through. And what lenses do we read it through as Christians? And, um, you know, the question is, we need to make sure these lenses are consistent with the teachings of the Word of God, right? We develop our hermeneutic and our view of the world from scripture and from talking with other Christians and what, uh, the, what God reveals in nature some, to some degree. But scripture is always the ultimate authority in that. And of course, we've talked about how in the 20th century we've encountered two kinds of secular forces. Uh, well, it's actually one secular force, modernism, that has led, ironically enough, even though we think of liberals and fundamentalists as being dire enemies, not agreeing on anything, Underneath it all, their epistemology, their view of truth is very similar. They have a need for absolute certainty, right, in some objective uh, sense. And the liberals find it internally, and the fundamentalists find it, you know, in purely propositional truths. And we can see from Ellen White and the pioneers that they didn't want to choose between those two things. They said propositional truth is important and experience is important. And to have a certainty, you need a combination of the two. You need evidence that you then combine with the experience that God gives you, right? And if, if, if you could have a certainty that was absolutely demonstrable and verifiable in some scientific way, where would the need be for faith? The whole idea of faith is that you're believing in something that you can't absolutely fully demonstrate. God gives us evidence. There's a very famous Ellen White quote, and I think I left it out, but I have it in the book that uh, God gives us abundant evidence to support the Bible, history, prophecy, but it's not demonstration. What does that mean? There's evidence, but not demonstration. There's room for us to doubt if we want to choose to doubt. So what are we left with, probabilities? She says no, because there's another evidence, and that is the evidence of experience. When we test God's word and we rely on it with our lives, then the darkness of any doubts we have can disappear in the experience that God gives us. But the point is, it's both, right? It's not um, either or, it's an and. And I thought that a point that uh, Dr. Wallin made this morning uh, illustrated this very nicely. So the discussion between Eve and the serpent. Uh, I think yesterday we talked a little bit about how during the time of Christ, he actually experienced the same conflict between fundamentalists and liberals that we do, right? Who were the Pharisees? They were the fundamentalists, you know, the absolute letter of the law, and they put burdens on people's backs that were too heavy to carry. 
And the, who were the liberals? The Sadducees, who didn't believe in resurrection or the angels. And um, the little colloquy at the tree made me realize that, in fact, the same thing existed in the Garden of Eden. What was Eve doing when she said, you shall not eat from the tree or touch it? Added a requirement that God hadn't given, right? Um, God had not said, do not touch it. Now, was it a good idea not to touch it? Maybe if Adam and Eve had children, they would have instituted a rule saying, it's so bad to eat this fruit that we think that, that we're going to say you shouldn't touch it, right? And it would have been a good thing not to touch it. But it was a problem when they took what could have been a human tr tradition and teaching and made it into a divine command. Because when you create a divine command that isn't actually from God, you set yourself up for a backlash, right? Because Satan touches it and nothing happens. And so, Ella, so, so Eve went from being a fundamentalist, adding human tradition to something God hadn't said and saying this is divine truth, to in a matter of minutes, the other extreme of liberalism, of ignoring a divine command that God had given, right? So we can see right there in miniature the human capacity to go from one extreme to another. And have you noticed sometimes in our own church, in our own experience, people who are the most harshly conservative on one side of the church, a few years later you discover they've swung all over the other direction. This happened in the 1970s with a number of our ministers. You may have heard of The White Lie by Walter Ray. Well, before he wrote The Right Lie, he wrote a series of books collecting Ellen White quotes on a variety of topics because he was so enamored about the truth of her teachings and he felt that she was verbally inspired and this was information she only got from him and didn't have sources. And then when he saw that this wasn't true, he swung all the way over the other side and attacked not only Ellen White, but the Bible. And do we face the same temptation and danger today? To claim too much, to set it up too high, and then to swing over to the other side and ignore what God has revealed and requires of us. I thought that, uh, that Dr. Walling put that very nicely. Um, the 16th century reformer, I've got a trivia quiz for you this morning. I want to find out which 16th century reformer is the most important to Adventism. And so I've got a picture of a group of them here. How many of them can you identify? Who's this fellow in the middle? Martin Luther. Good. I'm glad you could get that one at least. I think it was Time Magazine that uh, uh, decided he was the most important man. He was at least in the top two of the last thousand years. Remember when the millennium came? And I personally think it's true. I think Luther's impact on Western thought, really the beginning of the modern world, goes to Luther's discovery of the importance of the individual. Because once the individual speaks directly to God, then that individual needs rights and protections and isn't merely a plaything or a pawn of the state. Modern democracies, modern society, even modern science is traceable, I believe, to this fundamental orientation in how we view uh, man in relation to God and the state and the church. Um, sola Scriptura, justification by faith. 
priesthood of believers, all important doctrines for the Adventist church. Um, now, is there anyone else here you recognize? Okay, the, probably the next most recognizable figure is here, John Calvin with a long beard who hung out in Geneva and wrote the Institutes of the Christian Religion. We often don't view Calvin as somebody we've inherited a lot from because he's known for his strong predestination, right? Adventists tend to believe that Christ died for all and whosoever will can accept this invitation of, of grace and salvation. Um, and we don't believe... The Bible has a doctrine of predestination, but it's not an unconditional predestination which Calvin would set out. But sometimes that difference obscures the fact that he also was a strong believer in justification by faith and also believed in um, church organization and order in ways that Luther never developed. In fact, our system of church organization with conferences, which are representative elected uh, pastors and elders from local churches, um, really that uh, is related in any way to, Luther, to Calvin's notion of church government. And Calvin also had a belief in the perpetuity in, uh, of God's law. There's something called the three uses of the law. Okay? The first use of the law is that it tells all of humanity what right and wrong is. And uh, so it allows societies to have laws against theft and murder. The second use of the law is to bring the sinner to Christ. It's to show that you can't keep the law and that you need Christ. Well, for Luther, this was all he thought the law was good for. Once you accepted Christ, there was no further use for the law. You just walked in Christ and his love and grace. And you may know some Christians today who believe that this would be the stream who believe that the law has been nailed to the cross, been done away with after you've been converted. That's it for the law. But there's a, a third use of the law, and this is what Calvin believed in, that the law continued to be a guide to morality for the Christian because you needed a kind of thermometer to know whether you were staying in Christ, to staying near Christ. And the law didn't save you, and it didn't... If you, it, it was like the book of James, right? The law continued to be a mirror that you looked in to see if you were st uh, still on the pathway of righteousness. And if you weren't, the solution wasn't the law. When you look in the mirror, you don't use the mirror to clean your face. You use the washcloth and the water. And that would represent, of course, Christ and his grace. So it was still a grace understanding, but it was a grace understanding of the continuing role of the law. Now, which view do Adventists have? Luther's view or Calvin's view? Calvin's view, right? So, and actually, so your Christian friends who are Presbyterians or go to uh, any church with Reformed in the name, congrega not congregational churches, but, but Congregationist, Congregationalist churches, uh, they will generally believe in the continuity of God's law. They won't keep Sabbath, but that's because they believe that Sabbath has been changed to the first day of the week, but they still believe they should keep the commandment. So you'll have a different kind of Bible discussion with them, and it's sometimes interesting to know these historic antecedents so you know who you're dealing with and how you might be able to most effectively study with them. So we do have some things in common with, with uh, Calvin, but his strong predestination has caused us to, and if you read the Great Controversy, Luther has about three chapters and Calvin has about half a chapter. Uh, and Calvin engaged in some activities in Geneva, sort of ran a theocracy, 
uh, combining church and state, and often we get after the Catholics for using persecution and, and the Inquisition, but Calvin actually oversaw the, per, the, the execution of a fellow Christian because he didn't believe in the Trinity. Uh, the American Puritans were Calvinists and also did similar things in New England. So two great important figures, but maybe not the most influential on Adventism. Here's a third figure, but less of you may have heard of him, Philip Melanchthon. He was a colleague of Luther's in, uh, in Wittenberg, a young genius. He was a full doctor by the age of 21, and Luther was the great roaring, raging bull of the Reformation who uh, uh, was passionate and often spoke uh, without thinking things through entirely and spoke truth, but often in rather blunt and sometimes even brutal ways and uh, was the son of a miner and seemed to have spent time around the language of miners. <laughs> and uh, so he, Melanchthon on the other hand, was quiet, studious, careful, thoughtful, uh, and so they made quite a powerful combination together. And Luther came up with the big powerful ideas and Melanchthon put them in careful, systematic outline. And Luther had a great deal of regard for Melanchthon, but Melanchthon was somewhere in between Calvin and Luther, and Melanchthon actually had uh, an acceptance of, the, of some elements of a third use of the law. And unlike both Luther and Calvin, and we don't think of Luther in this way, but Luther also believed in predestination, much like Calvin. Um, because Melanchthon had more of an openness to free will, Lutheranism later on developed more along the free will lines. Um, and so most of us have forgotten that Luther was actually a strong predestinarian. So in some ways, Melanchthon is more like more similar to our beliefs, but not entirely, because he was a strong advocate, as Calvin was, of keeping church and state together and of overseeing heretics and, and expelling them and imprisoning them and, if necessary, even executing them. Ulrich Zwingli uh, was part of the reform tradition. He died in combat, fighting for the truth of Protestantism against the Catholic armies of Austria and Switzerland. Uh, so, and then here's uh, Huss, who was around a, a good hundred years earlier. So, these are all people who are important to Adventism, but most of the beliefs that I've set out for them are held by many other Christians, right? We can't just say sola scriptura or justification by faith. The Adventists are the only ones that understand it, right? Sometimes we like to think that, but these are great solas that we've inherited in good part. Maybe they're not perfectly understood by anybody, and maybe sometimes we think we have a fuller understanding of them, but these are certainly important to Methodists and Baptists and others out there who appreciate these same teachings. None of what I've said here have really been uniquely Adventist. There's a third, there's another group of reformers whose names most of you probably don't know, but you've heard of their designation. Um, they are the radical reformers, the radical reformation, the Anabaptists. Why Anabaptists? Baptized again, because they were baptized as babies, but they began to reject the notion of infant baptism. 
And they said that you had to be, have an intelligent faith in Christ. And the church was going to be the community of the faithful that came out of society and lived according to different values and standards. Now these days, church ritual and sacrament is just like this kind of marginal trivia that we mostly don't care about except when it comes time to baptize our own children. But in that day and age, this was the kind of thing that uh, battles were fought over. And the reason for it was this. If you were going to have a united society and church and state working together, then everybody who was a member of the state needed to be a member of the church. And how did you do that? You baptized all the babies, right? Whenever somebody born, you baptized them into the church. Now they were a member of the church and a citizen of the state, and you had a justification for church and state working together to keep them in line, morally and spiritually and civilly. And then you could have a stable society. And what did the Anabaptists do? They came along and they broke up this, this combination, and they said, no, you can't baptize babies. They were almost viewed as anarchists, right? What is this going to do to our stable society? They were the ones, based on Luther's priesthood of believers, and if you were here on Sunday, you'll know what I'm talking about. They took his priesthood of believers idea very seriously, even after he backed away from it. And they said, this is the way we're going to organize our church. And the, if, the Anabaptists then had churches full of baptized, converted Christians that actually lived lives of purity. And if somebody was too good, goody two-shoes, they said, you must be an Anabaptist, right? You're actually living the truths of the gospel. And thus was born the notion of the free church, the church that would be free from the constraints of the magistrate and from the constraints of society. And uh, not only did they believe in infant baptism, they believed in the separation of church and state. Um, they uh, believed that uh, citizens shouldn't serve in the military or serve as magistrates because that would be using force, and they didn't believe that force should be used. They also, some of them also believed in the state of the dead as we believe it. Um, some of them, and I'll touch on this a bit later, were the first Sabbath keepers in the early modern period that we can find record of. Um, so they had many elements that are more similar to the distinctive positions of our church. They were also believed in free will. Unlike Luther and Calvin, they rejected notions of predestination. And this is an important point because the, the trouble with the radical reformers is that almost all of these names seem to have been largely unknown to our pioneers. It's hard to say, look at the radical reformers and oh yes, we can draw a line from them to us because our pioneers didn't really seem to know about them. The exception to that is, uh, is this name here, Menno Simons, in, uh, in the Netherlands, in Holland. And Ellen White actually talks about him in The Great Controversy. Um, but he wasn't nearly the first one. He came after a long line of others, all of which we largely ignored. Uh, I don't believe there's any evidence that he, for instance, kept the Sabbath or had some of our other distinctive beliefs, but he does represent a small connection, uh, cer certainly someone our pioneers knew about. But the man who, who took many of the radical Reformation ideas, even though he wasn't a radical reformer himself, and became more associated with them, was 
uh, well, I have a slide here on free will and God's nature. So I've told you that while Calvin and Luther didn't believe in free will, that Philip Melanchthon and the Anabaptists did. And this, this caused them to have a different view of God in some ways. If you believe that God from eternity decides which group of people are going to be saved and which group are going to be lost, you have to have a certain view of how God acts in the world, right? There's a certain arbitrariness to that, at least from our perspective, that we're never going to understand. Luther, uh, Calvin was very open about this and said, we shouldn't expect to understand God or his ways at all, right? It's not that there's some mystery to God. It's the whole thing is a mystery. We just need to understand that he's sovereign, he's all-powerful, and we need to worship him for that. L Luther wasn't quite so blunt. He said, look, Christ reveals a God of love, and that's what we need to focus on. There is this other aspect to God that we're never going to understand, and he had a word for it, deus absconditus, the hidden God. And underneath it all, God has this nature that is arbitrary, and it could do anything, and we don't know anything about it, but don't think about it too hard. Just let it go. And, um, but the Anabaptists weren't happy with this. They wrote books in the 1520s on freedom of the will, and they weren't just concerned about human autonomy or, or as the, the Renaissance, you know, putting man at the center of all things. They were concerned about the glory and honor of God. Because if God made some people who could only sin and do nothing but sin, then how is God not in some sense the author of sin, right? He makes these people so they will sin, so they will be, and they felt that this would impair the glory and character of God and make him in some ways the, the author of evil himself. And so putting human free will in between God, his creation, humans, and evil created a responsibility for evil that did not make God the author of it. It made God the author of creatures who could choose that if they wanted to, right? You see the difference between the two? Well, these ideas were put together by two figures. One you may have heard of, the other you almost certainly haven't. James Arminius. Who's heard of James Arminius? Let me see your hands. Oh, good, good. Uh, several of you here. I think he is the reformer that is most important to the Seventh-day Adventist Church. He's a reformer from the Netherlands. He believes in justification by faith and sola scriptura and all these important things. He's a Calvinist, and he believes in predestination, but he believes that God has predestined those who have faith to be saved, but it's up to you as to whether you exercise that faith or not. So all those in Christ will be saved. That's predestination. But it's up to you as to whether you're going to be in Christ or not. He believed in prevenient grace. The natural man on its own wouldn't even choose God. Left to our own devices, we would all follow Satan. But God gives all prevenient grace. He awakens the moral capacity in man. But that grace, in a sense, is resistible. You can choose to push it away, but that's a choice of yours. Or you can choose to accept it, and then you can be saved. So God's offer of salvation comes to everyone. Um, I'm going to talk about him for another minute or two. This is Hugo Grotius, who uh, I first heard about in law school, because he's a very famous lawyer 
who wrote the first treatises on international law and the law between nations, natural law, international law. The International Law Society today is still called the Hugo Grotius Society. Uh, most lawyers, and I didn't know this when I studied him at law school, don't know that he was also a well-informed theological writer who was a disciple and colleague of Arminius. And Arminius's notion about God's freedom and the freedom he gives to humanity made him think like a lawyer does about God and his government. What does that mean for the kind of world that God is running? Um, Let's talk about Arminius a little bit more for a moment. It's Roger Olson who says that Arminius' strongest objection to unconditional predestination is that it is injurious to the glory of God. Because from these premises, we deduce as a further conclusion that God really sins, that God is the only sinner, that sin is not sin. Arminius never tired of arguing that the strong Calvinist doctrine of predestination cannot help making God the author of sin. And if God is the author of sin, then sin is not truly sin, because whatever God authors is good. According to Arminius, God was not the arbitrary divider of humanity into vast camps of the eternally damned and a small camp of those who were saved. Um, he defended God against being the arbitrary author of evil, uh, and re-emphasized the biblical teaching of the human choice, the human choice re-energized by God's prevenient grace in choosing for good. Now, Grotius, he took this idea of Arminius about God and his freedom and moral freedom, and he wrote on something called the moral government of God. And he wrote the most actually a famous apologetics book of his day, um, you've heard of men like C.S. Lewis and Josh McDowell. Well, he was like the C.S. Lewis of the 16th century, the 17th century. He wrote a book defending the divinity and resurrection of Christ, the inspiration of the scriptures to be shared with Jews and Muslims as um, the Holland became a great seafaring nation. And so they would take copies of this book so they could talk about the truths of Christianity to others. His book was so effective that it was used into the 19th century by Protestant missionaries. Um, he also wrote another book um, that talked about the importance of God's justice to running his government with the belief that God's government flowed from his character. That character was love, and the government of God was accordingly one of the many displays of his eternal love. This was the Groschen system. Does any of that language sound familiar to you? Does anyone else teach that God's character is related to his, his law, which is reflected in his government, which is, reflected, which is related to love? Right? This is what Ellen White is commonly known for saying. Well, we, the roots of this idea go deep back into the 16th and 17th century. And how did this... The, 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 the question that Grotius was answering was trying to understand why Christ had to die. And I think we're still trying to explain this to our young people today. If we can forgive each other without exacting a penalty or a payment, why can't God? Like when I was growing up and my sister did something to 
harm me or offend me or... And then she was sorry. My parents made me forgive her without demanding, you know, five dollars or, or something of hers. I mean, sometimes she had to make restitution if she'd taken something of mine. But in a sense, I was taught if somebody is honestly um, sorry and asks for your forgiveness, should you freely give it? Are you going to require your pound of flesh before you forgive? Well, if you can do that, why can't God? And there were various theories on this that, well, it was God's honor that was being impaired. It was his, his justice that was needing to be paid. But it made, in some ways, focusing on it in that way, made it, it seem like we had this rather thin-skinned deity that was really concerned about his honor, right? You know, you can forgive, but God's so honorable. And Well, Grotius came up, I think, with a better way of thinking about this. Rather than thinking about God as an individual like you and I are, we need to think about him as the governor of a whole universe, of a government that is based on certain important principles that if those principles are violated, harm will come to everyone, right? That God's laws are the perfect laws that guarantee happiness and health and success. And if you start violating those laws, you undermine the whole system and it will come crashing down in some way. And in, in some way, this is what the great controversy Satan is arguing. You don't have to follow these laws. You can do what you want and everything will be okay. But if this is true about God and his government, then at what point can God start making exceptions to who he enforces the law against? Because once you make the first exception, then the next person that comes along is going to say, well, hey, he got off the hook. So rather than thinking about my sister taking my um, MP3 player and breaking it, and my parents make me forgive her, we have to think about it like I'm the judge in town and my sister has stolen from an electronics store and if she comes into the courtroom, can I just say, oh, well, it's my sister, I'm going to let her off, right? Because it's not about my personal hurt feelings, it's about this system of law and order that I'm upholding. Because if I let my sister off scot-free, then the next person that comes in, having stolen from the, from the supermarket, is going to say, well, you just let her off, right? How can you throw the book at me? So the point that's being made is that I'm being an unfair and unjust judge in favoring certain people who are somehow related to me. There's a question over here. Right. Um, so... Do you think that Jesus died for the sin that Mary Magdalene committed? Well, so Christ is able to offer free forgiveness because, in fact, he's paid the price, right? That's precisely the point, that he can't, that the reason that he can offer this forgiveness and not violate this system of, of, uh, of moral government is because he has borne the penalty, that the penalty has been paid, and it doesn't have to do with his thin skin or God's thin skin. It has to do that fact that he's acting on behalf of the benefit of all the beings of the universe who depend on the stability, fairness, and morality of his government. 
Well, he's not acting selfishly, protecting his own. It does have to do with his honor, and it does have to do with his justice, but it's his honor and his justice which lay as the foundations for this whole government, which benefit all of us, all, not of just of us, but of all created beings everywhere. Uh, this is why there had to be a price paid. This is why the moral influence theory isn't an adequate explanation on its own. Now, this was a very powerful way of thinking about God and his government and his oversight, and it, it caused people uh, to think about human governments in different ways as well. How did this theory, and, and I hope as I set it out to you, you're like, yeah, doesn't everyone believe this? And the answer is no, everyone doesn't believe this. You believe this because you've read so much of Ellen White, because this is effectively the system that has been transmitted to us not exactly 100% the same. We've modified it a bit, and I'll get to that in a little while. But our great controversy model has roots deep in the Protestant Reformation. How did it get to America? You've probably heard of John Milton, the famous author of Paradise Lost and many other works on church history, on church and state. He was a strong believer in a strong separation of church and state and religious freedom. But he wrote this famous book, Paradise Lost. He was raised a Puritan, which in that day meant a Calvinist, a believer in predestination and the arbitrary nature of God. But as a young man, he toured Europe, and he had a chance to spend time with Hugo Grotius, who was by then a very famous jurist uh, on the continent. And after he left Grotius, he would frequently refer to Grotius in his writings, and it was, he, he was clearly familiar with them. He writes his famous book, Paradise Lost, which the opening lines say that it is written with the purpose to assert eternal providence and justify the ways of God to men. Justify the ways of God to men. Does that sound like a very Calvinist thing to say? Calvinist is all about sovereignty, right? Accept God for what he does. Maybe someday you'll know, but you're not going to know now. No, this is a very moral government of God, Arminian way of thinking about things. Milton also believes in Christ died for everyone and freedom of the will. And therefore, in his poem, Paradise Lost, he's trying to encourage people. He's trying to show people that God has this wonderful kingdom, that Christ deserves our worship, not just because of who he is, but because of the way that he acts and because of the sacrifice that he's given for us, because of his wonderful character. And so Paradise Lost and his writings help spread this view of God and the great controversy. You've probably also heard of John Locke. He was also very familiar with Hugo Grotius and often referred to him as an authority. Now think about God's moral government and it being open for the uh, onlooking universe to examine and see. Well, what about our human governments, right? We go from the divine right of kings, but now we have an understanding that governments should treat people fairly, that people have rights, that governments should be accountable to the people, that they should act on a moral basis. Well, all of this is reflective of this theological construct that Arminius and Grotius put together and is now beginning to influence the way we're thinking about human governments. There's a third person who I'm quite certain you haven't heard of, unless you've read my book, um, a fellow called Thomas Tillam. Who's Thomas Tillam? Um, He's a Seventh-day Baptist, and I need to set this one up a little bit. There's some people who say, oh, the Adventist view of last-day events and Sunday laws and the mark of the beast and the seal of God, you know, that's so, that's so last century, or that's so 
two centuries ago now, right? The 1880s. When Ellen White wrote The Great Controversy, there was pending on the floor of Congress a Sunday law bill. Did you know that? And so some people say she was just reading the book of Revelation kind of in the immediate context of her times and came up with this interpretation. But what they don't know is she didn't come up with the interpretation. Uriah Smith wrote about it earlier. And it's Leroy Froome who says that it was actually Joseph Bates in about 1849 in his book on the Sabbath that begins to connect the Sabbath with the seal of God and a test between days of worship. And Joseph Bates does indeed do this. But Froome was wrong about Bates being the one to originate this. And when I was doing my dissertation a few years ago, um, in the electronic archives of the university that I was studying at, I found this document by the Seventh-day Baptist that was written not 100 years before Ellen White and, and Joseph Bates, but 200 years. Back in the 1650s, there was a Seventh-day Baptist called Thomas Tillam. He was in New England for a while, but then he returned to Britain, and he wrote a tract on the Sabbath, defending and explaining the Sabbath. But it also dealt with prophecy, and it dealt with the book of Daniel and Revelation. And I'm going to share uh, just the title of that book with you, because this was written at a time and a place when you didn't have to guess what the book said. They put the whole argument in the title. Um, and so um, I want you to buy my book so I don't put the whole argument on the front cover. But this is, this is the title. The Seventh-day Sabbath sought out and celebrated, or the saint's last design upon the man of sin. With their advance of God's first institution to its primitive perfection, being a clear discovery of that black character in the head of the little horn, Daniel 7.25, so we're still on the title, the change of times and laws, with the Christian's glorious conquest over that mark of the beast and the recovery of the long-slighted seventh day to its ancient glory. Right? 200 years before the Seventh-day Adventist Church comes on the scene, our eschatology about Sabbath and Sunday and the final crisis is here. Right? Now, some people are worried that, oh, did we copy this? <laughs> but actually, you should be thinking, no, this is very helpful because it shows that other Christians have seen the same thing in the Bible, right? It wasn't Ellen White sitting in uh, America in the 1880s with Sunday laws on the floor of Congress. Here you have somebody 200 years earlier, a continent away, who is reading Daniel and Revelation and coming to the same conclusion. Remember what I said on um, uh, yesterday about witnesses? Witnesses to biblical truth? Just because Thomas Tillam believed this doesn't make it true. But the fact that he believed it shows that there are other voices and other people outside our time and place who are seeing very similar things. And it should give us greater confidence, right, in our own prophetic message and heritage. Now, I raise this here because, A, I think you would find it interesting. Um, and, and I have the quote in my book, Reformation and Remnant, so if you want the, uh, the original context and source. Here's the... The chapter one title, The Seventh-day Sabbath Sought Out and Celebrated by Saints Obtaining the Victory Over the Mark of the Beast. And uh, the chapter begins with this sentence, the first royal law that ever Jehovah instituted and for our example celebrated, namely his blessed Seventh-day Sabbath, is in these very last days become the last great controversy between the saints and the man of sin, the changer of times and laws. Now, I have no evidence that Ellen White of the Pioneers actually read or knew about Thomas Tillam. 
We do know that we got the Seventh-day Sabbath from um, a Seventh-day Baptist that Joseph Bates met with um, the lady. Somebody knows the name. I'm just going blank. Rachel Preston Oaks. Uh, and so did Rachel Preston Oaks know about this? I, you know, I don't know. Did Joseph Bates? We don't know. There's no documentary evidence. But it doesn't really matter. It, what it shows is that other people are seeing these same truths. Now, the reason I raise it here was because Thomas Tillam viewed the Sabbath as an expression in part of God's character. Because in this book on the Sabbath, he says this, that God's moral law is not merely good because commanded, but it is therefore commanded because it is good. And such is the nature of the seventh day. See the difference between that? Is, is, is whatever God commands good, and therefore if God said to do something evil, it would be good because God said so? Or, or is it that God would only command good things and wouldn't command evil things? We believe the second, and that's the point being made here. Luther and Calvin would have believed the first. And so this shows that the man who taught, wrote so eloquently about the Sabbath also had this view of God's character and the God's moral government of love. And this seems to be consistent. Uh, Adventist scholar Emerson has pointed out that the first modern Sabbath keepers were the Anabaptists back in the 1520s. We're not sure, we can't find any evidence that uh, Thomas Tillam was connected with these earlier Anabaptists. But it's interesting that the free will Christians who cared about God's character are also the ones who discovered the Sabbath. I haven't quite put together a causal explanation for that, but I do think it has something to do with the notion that the Sabbath is you know, God's signature in the Ten Commandments, and it's also a reminder that God is the author of the physical creation and the moral creation, and, God, and we can understand through human reason some level of truths about God and his moral creation. As we discussed earlier, the heavens declare the glory of God. Romans says the nature points out the power of God, his creative power and might, that they are without excuse, meaning there's some moral message there too. So Sabbath shows that the physical order that God creates also has some kind of moral message into it. And this is what allowed Grotius to be the international law expert he was. You see, the problem with international law is that there's no legislature that's overseeing it, like the laws of a nation. Well, Grotius says God has put a moral order in the universe, and when we apply our reason to it, we can come up with principles that should guide the interactions of nations. And this is reflected, I think, in what it means to be a Sabbath keeper. But I want to look at another aspect of this human gov moral government of God, another way that it came to America, you've heard of John Wesley, the founder of Methodism. His, favorite, his parents' favorite author was Hugo Grotius, and when Wesley was at Oxford, he studied with his friends in the Methodist club the writings of Hugo Grotius. So the moral government of God, human free will, was all part and package of Methodism. And it's here that we clearly see how this moral government of God impacts the way people think about the world around them. There began to be a correlation between those who believed in the moral government of God and those that believed that human government should be moral. And I mentioned this with John Locke, didn't I? But there's also a clearer example. Have you heard of the name William Wilberforce? The ender of what? 
slavery in the British Empire anyway. He was a Methodist. He grew up in a Methodist family. He fell away. He was reconverted, and he was going to become a pastor, but his friends persuaded him that his political influence and connections would actually allow him to do more good in society. John Wesley, in one of the last, maybe the last letter he ever wrote, wrote to William Wilberforce saying he should wage his war against slavery, that execrable villainy, which is the scandal of religion, of England, and of human nature. Wesley exhorted him, O be not weary of well-doing, go on in the name of God and in the power of his might, till even American slavery, the vilest that ever saw the sun, shall vanish away before it. Right? So the Methodists were strongly anti-slavery, at least early on. American Methodists in the South began to make compromise with slavery at some point, but there is a consistent pattern of those people believing in the moral government of God who then involve themselves in their communities to try to bring greater levels of fairness and justice there. Anti-slavery, temperance reform, preventing the sale of alcohol because not just to make men better, but because the use of alcohol caused men to abuse the women and children in their families. Took away the bread and the food and the clothes from the women and children and caused them to be often physically abused. So Methodism, Grotius comes to America in two ways. Methodism comes to formally embrace his teachings, and as you probably know, Ellen White was raised a Methodist. So this is part and parcel of her theological heritage. Um, American Puritans and their Calvinistic heirs were very impressed, even though they didn't buy into Arminianism on the whole, they liked very much Grotius's view of the atonement of Christ. And they kind of tried to take his moral government theory of the atonement and wed it to their predestinarian views of the way God dealt with humanity. It was kind of an unstable coalition of ideas, but while it lasted, it had some very interesting impacts. You may have heard of Jonathan Edwards, famous American divine. He was a Puritan and a Calvinist, believer in predestination. Many people don't know because the uh, Calvinists don't highlight this, but he was a slave owner. He actually owned slaves and defended the practice. His son, Jonathan Edwards Jr., was also a minister and a theologian. He came to adopt Grotius's moral government theory of the atonement and God's moral government uh, idea. And I think it's no coincidence that he reversed his father's position and wrote books against slavery. Right? So you can see this close connection between these theological views Nathaniel Taylor was a professor at Yale in the early 19th century, and he laid the groundwork uh, in good part for the Second Great Awakening. He had a class called The Moral Government of God, and he lectured on this topic of God having a moral government. One student said, while lecturing, his voice often trembled, and at times the tears would start, especially when speaking of the moral government of God. And this may be hard for us to understand fully today because the moral government of God today contains three things that most people don't like, right? You've got morality, which is not something that people are thrilled about today. You've got government, which we discredit and disbelieve and distrust. And then you've got God, and a lot of people are uncertain about him. 
So moral government of God doesn't arise within us great feelings. We're not about to weep as we talk about it. But in his day and age, the thing that caused him to feel so strongly about this was it allowed him to understand the fairness of God's government and that he was fully sincere. Do I have this in my next slide? No. That uh, he was fully sincere. When he said, choose salvation this day, when, he, when the Bible said, for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him was true. That whosoever meant you or your friend or your family, and you could choose. You didn't have to be elect. And this was a deeply moving uh, understanding for those who had grown up under a regimen. If God selected you, you're in, and if you're not, you're not. You're out. He came to embrace the view that Christ died for all. And this was the theology that caused, in part, the Second Great Awakening, that, that great revival of Christianity in America that our church was a part of. Um, Taylor wasn't the preacher of the Great Awakening, but you've probably heard of Charles Finney, the lawyer-turned-evangelist who transmitted Taylor's views through his popular preaching trying to stir the emotions of his listeners to make that moral choice. Um, you may have heard of Albert Barnes. He was the commentator whose commentary sold a million copies in the 19th century, and he articulated these views of the moral government of God. It's not a coincidence, I think, that Finney and Barnes were among the most ardent anti-slavery activists in the evangelical world. They founded, uh, Finney did Oberlin College, uh, Albert Barnes was put on trial for heresy, wrote two major works against slavery. He wasn't convicted, actually, of heresy. Uh, he was acquitted. Um, but now we come to Ellen White, and I'm going to share a quote with you that on its surface doesn't seem overly significant, but now I've told you this story. It shows a direct connection between Ellen White and her thinking on this topic and this train of ideas that I've just shared with you. So this is written in 1900. She wrote to Edson, her son, calling for her library to be sent to Australia. I have sent for four or five large volumes of Barnes notes on the Bible. I think they are in Battle Creek in my house now sold, somewhere with my books. I may never visit America again, and my best books should come to me when it is convenient. Very interesting, isn't it? The prophet of God that receives visions from God about what is true she still found it useful to read the writings of other dedicated Christians. Uh, not only did she read writings of other dedicated Adventists, but of New School Presbyterians who didn't keep the Sabbath, but had a profound understanding of the moral government of God. And if you read her writings, you can plug in moral governor, God's government, and you'll suddenly see this notion all over the place that she was heir to. Right? She didn't create everything she was given from whole cloth or from vision. Uh, she was in the Protestant line and heritage. It's not to deny the fruits of her own Bible study and visions, which reinforced and expanded on the moral government of God theme. In fact, I think in her writings, I would change the name from the moral government of God to God's moral government of love. Right? Love becomes the central organizing theme the Conflict of the Ages series begins God is love. It ends at the end of great controversy with God is love. But she sees the importance of the morality in the structure too, doesn't she? 
since why can't we just call it God's government of love? Well, ever since the Beatles wrote uh, All You Need Is Love, right, what do modern day people think about love? It's this subjective sense of the thing I desire and anything that stands in the way should go away, including rules and regulations and, and principles. So we really need to keep both those notions together. God's moral government of love, uh, I think, is is the central way of understanding this. And I hope you can see the connection between this and the sanctuary. What is the sanctuary if it's not, in fact, the place where God's moral government, the control center of God's moral government of love? This is the place where the description of how sin is dealt with is described in detail, is, and the books are kept there to see how God deals. Does God not know who's saved and who's lost? Why are there these books there, right? They're for the onlookers, effectively. What did the Ark of the Covenant have over it? The angels with the, uh, on either side representing the hosts of heaven that are looking on, that are seeing that God has dealt fairly with who he's saved and who he hasn't saved, and that he does have a government of both love and morality. And in talking about the cleansing of the sanctuary, it's very interesting. Originally, the thought it was about the cleansing of the earth by fire, but they understood they got that wrong. There was a heavenly sanctuary that needed to be cleansed. But that didn't remove them entirely from believing there was a cleansing on the earth, but it wasn't with fire. It was a cleansing from sin. You're probably familiar with quotes about as the sanctuary in heaven is cleansed from sin, so the soul temple needs to be cleansed from sin here on earth. Defiling things should be put away. But it wasn't just an individual act. There was a notion that the church itself as a group, as a community, needed to be cleansed. Um, we do not follow Christ and angels work in the hearts of the children of men. The church above, united with the church below, is warring the good warfare upon the earth. There must be a purifying of the soul here upon the earth in harmony with Christ's cleansing of the sanctuary in heaven. This cleansing extended to issues of sin in the community. She talked about there are a few in the ranks of Sabbath keepers who sympathize with the slaveholder. When they embrace the truth, they did not leave behind them all the errors they should have left. They need a more thorough draft from the cleansing fountain of truth. Interesting that she connects a social evil, slavery, with the cleansing that needed to take place. Both Abraham Lincoln and Ellen White viewed the Civil War as part of God's both punishment and cleansing of not just America, but the Christian church in America of the evils of slavery. It's very interesting that the biggest Protestant churches in America split in the year 1844 over the issue of slavery, right? It's, I think, significant. It doesn't mean something didn't happen in heaven, and I think it did. But should we be surprised at the same time that major events are happening on earth to help Christians understand the evil of slavery? The moral government of God, right? We see that in the history of this teaching and we see it in our own church. What's happened to it today? I think as a people, the Adventist church should be mindful that our prophetic heritage and sanctuary message is closely tied in with movements to bring greater justice and equality to those that are marginalized and oppressed. Often, too often, we pit those who believe in the social justice and social gospel against those who believe in purity and truth in the church. But really, our prophetic message includes both, that this is an artificial separation that's a product 
of the liberal fundamentalist divide in the 20th century that we shouldn't be confused by. But now, I want to tie this together with yesterday's presentation. What I'm suggesting is that the central theme of Adventist teaching and theology was this belief about God and his moral government of love. And that as you look at the doctrines that our reformers recovered, questions that were difficult to answer, what does God do with uh, people after death? What does punishment look like at the end of time? What about creation and evolution? What about slavery? That in dealing with the interpretation of the Bible about these questions, they used the hermeneutical principle to help shed light on what the correct understanding was. And that principle was God's moral government of love. And as you look at some of our different teachings, it seems a bit of a hodgepodge, like we came up with the Sabbath and the sanctuary and the state of the dead and no alcohol and being against slavery, and these seem to be kind of disconnected things. But, you know, they discovered the sanctuary first, even before they discovered the Sabbath. And the sanctuary is the thing that puts together this idea of God and his government and morality and the Ten Commandments. And from there, they worked outwards, and they came to conclusions like, well, forever didn't mean an eternity of hellfire, the smoke of their torment ascended forever and ever. What kind of God is this picturing? We better look more closely at this word forever, and it's not that we're going to disregard it, but it's we're going to come to recognize that the Hebrew meaning of forever is somewhat different than our Western Greek-oriented concept, right? So we come up with an understanding that's consistent both with the language of the Bible properly understood and God's moral character of love. Slavery, likewise, slaves obey your master. But once we know about God's moral government of love, is this really something that would be acceptable in his kingdom? And we go back and we look at the word slavery and we say, wait, this is a bit different in the Hebrew than the racial kidnapping chattel slavery of the South. It's not justified or defended. And we came up with a different view. Wine didn't mean strong drink that caused men and women to abuse, men to abuse women and children. And what about theistic evolution and creation? So I'm a young earth, young life creationist, perhaps is the best, best way of putting it. And um, I think there's good reasons in the text of Genesis 1 and 2 to believe that. But I, it's not that I feel I'm so compelled to read Genesis 1 and 2 literally because I must in some absolute literary sense. It's that it's the reading that most makes most sense with what the rest of the Bible says about God, about the kind of God we serve. If you think about evolution, it requires suffering and death, right? If you're going to choose for the fittest, you have to weed out the less fit. The gene pool has to be purged. You can't have evolution without some sort of mass suffering, extinction, uh, death, and extinction. So if you believe that God creates through theistic evolution, that he's created a good creation through pain and suffering and death, you have something that's really hard to square with God's moral government of love. Now, I have some good Christian friends that are also theistic evolutionists. They just happen to be Calvinists. And if you're a Calvinist who believes that God creates much of the human race in order to torch them, torture them forever in hell, and that God's most important characteristic is sovereignty, well, you can be a theistic evolutionist in some ways with a, without it causing too much conflict with your belief system. But if you're an Adventist that believes that the central organizing truth of our church and the Bible in much many regards is God's moral government of love, how can you accept that? 
I don't think you can. And I think that's why Ellen White, in fact, was so strongly against it, as were our other pioneers. And then, of course, there's religious freedom, the separation of church and state. Doesn't mean the separation of morality in the state. That's a different thing. But that God gives us freedom to choose religious, make religious choices, and we should extend that to others. So there's a whole series of ideas that are tied together by this belief system. And I think if we understand this, if we understand this central organizing theme of Adventism, we will see that these continue to be good things. We're not going to be confused about people who insist on theistic evolution or say we have to somehow make a compromise with the scientific evidence. We'll take that evidence seriously, but we'll put it in the framework of God's moral government of love. And these other things we'll also agree with. But we'll also continue to use this framework to respond to problems in our society today. Our fundamentalist tendencies have caused us in some ways to not think about the public square anymore. We never really added any public issues after Ellen White died, as though the issues that arose in her day were the last and the end of all public morality. How do we relate justly and kindly to our immigrant neighbors in need? How do we critique the war on terror based on shared human dignity? How do we relate to our Muslim neighbors now that many of them are being demonized and scapegoated? Did you see in the papers today a young Muslim lady killed at the age of 17 uh, on the streets of, uh, where was it, in Virginia just yesterday? Two other uh, Indian Muslim men shot in a bar by a man who was outraged at them being there. Uh, hate crimes are up by a high percentage uh, because of the heated rhetoric we've had over the last year. How should we relate to this as Christians? What does the moral government of God tell us we should do? Well, there's a slide here that I sometimes divide into small groups to discuss, to talk about the traditions we have as a church and what we should keep and what may be open for modification. But I just have a few minutes left, and I think I'm just going to open the floor for questions about this presentation or um, the ones from the last two days, because this is my last presentation, and tonight I'm off to the Wisconsin camp meeting. <laughs> so uh, I will unfortunately be leaving all you happy people in Michigan. But uh, do you have any... Uh, any questions about any of this or how? And I should say, for those of you who haven't seen the book, the presentations I've given today and yesterday don't pretend to answer all the hard questions about the issues the church is facing, right? Those come in chapters 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10. <laughs> I've given you the scheme, the framework, the outline that I think you will find helpful in coming to satisfactory answers, and I've tried my hand at doing that on topics relating to the sanctuary and the atonement, creation and evolution. I've, hint, I've kind of hinted at the direction I go here with that. Uh, public affairs and religious liberty, same-sex marriage, how should we approach that as a church, the question of ordination, uh, ec ecumenism, how we relate to other churches, what about Sunday laws and other tests, uh, history and conspiracy, and then finally, um, perfection, last generation uh, theology. And I think that all of these things that are so contested in the church, that there's a, there's a more moderate way of thinking and talking about these things in light of this framework that I've set out. Um, yes? 
of the moral government of God and this whole, yeah, this, is, this, this message is part of this Reformation and the Remnant book. Well, he, you know, a lot of churches are dealing with these issues as well. The things I say about creation and evolution, um, they may be less interested in the ones on prophecy and, and, and Sabbath, but, um, you know, I, I think uh, most of the issues here are other churches are also wrestling with. Um, so, yeah, that would be the one. You know? Praise the Lord. Good. Uh, uh, yes, Clinton. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think the answer is yes. I mean, you know, that's sort of the point I'm making is that, is that in their study of Scripture led them to an understanding of the sanctuary, which is, in my mind, shorthand for seeing this picture of the way God is relating to the universe and to humanity, the way his moral, morality and law relate to his grace. It, it really puts together the framework of seeing how God um, relates to to humanity, that's the biblical framework, and then you need a kind of larger hermeneutic if you're going to really uh, use tota scriptura, taking all of scripture. I mean, it's impossible to keep all the texts of scripture in mind as you reach each single text. You usually do that in terms of larger concepts, right? The Bible teaches this about God. He's love, he's just, he's kind. Uh, and, and then we take the individual texts and look at the immediate context and the larger context. And so what I'm saying is this was the larger biblical context that they did the individual study of these particular doctrines on. And they, and they took those doctrines from Scripture, but they did it in the, in the light, in the theme of what they thought was the central teaching of Scripture, the love of God in running his government. And, you know, I, this is not like an original insight with me. If, if it was, there would be a problem because, you know, after 200 years of Adventism, Nick Miller discovers what the central organizing, you know, it exists out there. And um, other theologians have talked about it. I think there's a reason Ellen White called her book The Great Controversy, which is really shorthand for this. There's a reason that that book is probably our most popular book, it's the one we decided to give out by the millions right in the last few years, because it really encapsulates this idea. So I, I, I don't, I don't want to create the impression that they came up with some alien idea about God and what he does, and then decided to come up with their doctrines based on that. I think they, they came up with this from their Bible study and said, ah, this provides the key to unlock, to interpret and, you know, I pointed out before, there's some passages which are truly ambiguous, right? A, a, a plain reading sometimes only takes you so far. We talked about the comma in today. Where does it go before or after the today when Christ says, today you will be with me in paradise, or today I say unto you. The Greek doesn't tell us on its own. We have to interpret it based on other biblical passages, right? And so this is one of those other biblical principles that's used to deal with passages which are truly ambiguous. So, anybody else? Good. All right. Well, I can, I can go and pack my trailer. <laughs> Get home before midnight. God bless you. Let me have a final closing word of prayer with you. Dear Heavenly Father, I appreciate uh, the time that I've been able to spend with these Saints and sinners, 
that's what we all are um, as we walk the pathway to heaven by your grace. And I pray that uh, we will draw closer to you and understand more fully uh, the truths of your moral government of love and that it may help direct how we treat and reach out to our neighbors, to those around us, those in our communities. Uh, there are always points of, of doctrine and policy that we will be discussing and perhaps even arguing over. But Lord, as we do this, may people see in our countenance, in our, in our manner, that we are truly members and citizens of a moral government of love and that we treat all others with respect and love as we continue to engage these important topics. I pray these things and for a blessing on the rest of the Michigan camp meeting. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.